Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the jazz session is also available online anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. There are more ways to follow the jazz session. Of course, you could subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes or an RSS reader or whatever you like. You can also follow me on Twitter. My Twitter name is Jason D. Crane. Jason D. is in David Crane. And there is both a mailing list and a Facebook group. The mailing list you'll find at thejazzsession.com. Just click on mailing list along the top, and you can join that. That's an email mailing list. And then there's a Facebook group. If you uh, just type in The Jazz Session into the Facebook search box, you'll see the group. In either of those latter two cases, the mailing list or the Facebook group, you'll get one email each Monday morning telling you who's going to be on the show in the coming weeks. I think there's been a mailing list for pretty much the entire two years of the show. And I think I've sent out more than one email a week, maybe twice. Uh, so it is very, very uh, email inbox friendly. You will not get spammed from the jazz session. So uh, please join one or the other of those things and stay in touch with what's happening on the show. Here in uh, the Albany, New York area, there is a concert series called A Place for Jazz, and that's actually the name of a nonprofit group that sponsors this concert series. And the concerts take place in the Whisper Room, which is a Unitarian church, uh, really fascinating space in Schenectady, New York, which is not far from Albany, New York which is a couple hours north of New York City, which is really uh, just, a, I guess, a couple hours by plane from London, which, uh, never mind. Anyway, at this place, uh, they bring in six or seven artists uh, every year during the season, which runs in the fall primarily. And this year, one of those artists was Eric Alexander. And I had a chance to sit down with Eric before his gig. We were in the, uh, the green room, so to speak, uh, some sort of small library uh, off the main sanctuary area in this church. So here is some music featuring Eric Alexander.
My guest is saxophonist Eric Alexander. Uh, we are in a very lovely Unitarian Church in Schenectady, New York, of all places, and uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you, uh, at least from, from my point of view, you have managed to become distinctive by kind of having a vision and really following it, um, kind of almost despite trends that were changing around you. I mean, you've been remarkably consistent as a player. Can you, has that been a difficult road to hoe? It, well, there have been difficulties, but it hasn't been um, it hasn't been difficult for me, musically speaking, in terms of deciding how I want to play or what I want to do. I've always done what comes naturally to me. Now, whether or not that boded well, you know, commercially or financially for me, that's that's a different story. So sometimes it's been a little difficult, but I have to say I'm I'm very pleased with how things have progressed. And, uh, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably do the same thing. I was going to say, with the number of albums you've both released and been on as a sideman, it, it seems like it's worked out from almost any measure. Uh, yeah, I guess I have to, you know, thank my lucky stars because, you know, the truth is I, I never actively sought a record deal. I never was involved in any kind of intense self-promotion or, you know, taking a, a demo tape around to different people. I just sort of tried to take care of the type of music that I wanted to play and and just hope that it would work out for me that it would take that it would take care of me and it turned out that it did you know how did you know what that was the type of music that you wanted to play well you I don't even think you have to w- wonder where it came from or even think about it or you know even give it a second thought it's just something that's so obvious and it's right there in front of you you know I mean for me it was that way it was so obvious what I wanted to do and, and the way I wanted to play, you know, and the way I wanted to approach the saxophone. I just went for it. I didn't really think about it. It became obvious as a result of things you heard that you thought, this is the direction I want I, to pursue. I think that's probably the biggest thing, you know, seeing certain individuals play live and, and of course, hearing classic recordings that, that really affected me. It was just very obvious and immediately apparent to me uh, you know what I loved and and what I wanted to aspire to, and uh, I mean I've spent the better part of, I guess it's unbelievable to even say it, the last 22 years or so, you know, trying to you know more or less head in the same direction I've always been headed. Obviously there there have been tweaks and fine tuning along the way, but it's basically been the same thing. You, uh, one thing that you've managed in terms of consistency is to keep a lot of the same players around you too. Guys like David Hazeltine is here tonight. Nat Reeves. Um, you just you've kept uh, obviously Steve Davis is here tonight. You've kept a, a pretty good core group of people around you. Mm-hmm. What's the what is the the benefit for you musically of having those kind of consistent partners when you're making music? Well, the the, the biggest benefit is that I mean, besides the fact that they're all wonderful musicians, it's that you know we know each other so well. And uh, we know that each person has the other person's back. It's almost like a family, you know. You might fight with your brother now and then, but ultimately, I mean, in most cases, hopefully, uh, you know, your brother has your back in the end, or, or your mom or your dad has your back. And that's the way we are. We're really a family because we have the same uh, musical vision, and, and we truly do respect one another. We always wanted to play together, and it just worked out that that things became relatively successful for each one of us, you know, individually and I guess collectively if you're considering uh, the group one for all. It, it sort of happened at the same time, so we were always able to stay together. It's been really nice. We never 
made choices about personnel based on uh, issues like what might get over or what might sell records or, or what might attract a listening audience. We just did what we felt was right and what we felt comfortable with, and it worked out. It's so interesting because uh, uh, everything you're saying, uh, you make it sound like it was, uh, uh, you know, foreordained or something that it was going to work out this way. I mean, you, uh, but that is almost like an antithetical approach to how in almost any other musical situation or genre of music, mm-hmm. people have to be much more conscious of the the kind of commercial aspects. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, to what to what do you ascribe that? I mean, it can't be, it can't all just be luck. I mean, there has to have been a, a professional focus. Yeah. Well, to the no, like side. I said, I think. I, I think the guys that I have been with over the years, like you said, they not only do they have the same, or you know, by and large, the same musical vision that I do, but you know, they're great players and they've they've really honed their craft, so they deserve to be heard. That's you know, part one. Part two, I think, uh, and this is just a theory. I'm hypothesizing here. I think there are fewer and fewer people that are playing the way we play. So they're almost, at this point, is a, you know, maybe a niche market for that kind of thing? I don't know. Uh, it certainly isn't intentional on our part, but we're sort of... Uh, there are a few other guys that, that do what we do, but we're, we're kind of uh, in a select group of, you know, a minority of people out there now that are recording, and in, in some way that's worked to our benefit. It's funny, uh, as you were saying that, a couple of years ago I talked to Harry Allen. Uh, you don't really play anything alike, but you have one thing alike in that he also said that when he started playing the way he plays, no one else was really playing that way. Everyone was playing like John Coltrane uh, or later kind of in a, a, a more Michael Brecker style. And so he chose this more kind of Coleman Hawkins thing, and he's stuck with that for all these years, and he's created his or filled a niche that no one mm-hmm. else is filling. I think in his case and in our case, it, it, it hasn't been intentional, but it does prove that if you if you do what you truly love and, and do it, I'm not going to say great, but you do it well, I think people will take notice. You know, there are other people out there that are interested in what you're interested in, and if you do it really well and, you know, stick to your guns, it can be successful. Another piece of um, the kind of big jazz debate that's been going on ever since Terry Teachout wrote his piece a few weeks ago is whether or not young people are listening to music or listening to this music, mm-hmm. I should say. Uh, and I wonder what kind of folks are you seeing at your shows? Uh, how are your students reacting? You just mentioned uh, being at SUNY Purchase. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question, and it, it you know you almost at this point have to look at things from a global perspective because everything is so tied in, you know, all over the world. Anything that happens in one place, people somewhere else know about it almost right away. 
I think there are more young people in other parts of the world, uh, you know, or I should say a greater percentage of young people truly interested in straight-ahead jazz. However, that's not to say that there isn't some interest here in the United States. There are many young musicians that I've encountered, you know, teaching at the university or, or privately that are truly interested in playing, you know, the type of music that I've been interested in and, you know, the, the real nuts and bolts of the straight-ahead jazz tradition. So I think that the music will always persevere and, and be alive, and there will always be a market for it. It might be dwindling, but uh, I think the people that are truly interested in it are, uh, they're, they're kind of set in their ways, and they're not going to abandon, you know, that, that type of music or those musicians that they really admire. So uh, in a way, I think the future looks good. And on the other hand, I'd like to find some ways to try to you know, spread some positive information about what we do to some other young people because it's really been my experience, even listeners that are very uneducated and have no uh, you know, experience listening to this type of music, if they hear it done well, they really like it. They enjoy it. So I think there has to be something done. I, I don't claim to have the answers. It seems like there's a, a, a built-in readiness for improvisation out there already. I mean, there's, I mean, first we had 20 years of people who listened to Jerry Garcia improvise, and then we've, now we've had, I mean, Fish and all the kind of jam band scene. Mm. It seems like it shouldn't be as big a conceptual leap to arrive at some form of jazz yeah. uh, comfort with improvisation. No, I agree with you. Um, it's, it's very important to, to remember, I think, that, uh, and this is something I think about a lot, you know, the groove and the type of rhythmic, uh, it's not necessarily intensity, but just sort of, uh, well, we'll say intensity for now. That's so important. If you can project that, it doesn't matter if you're playing a swing beat or a funk beat or, a, you know, jam, garage band beat. If you can really put a good energy out there and a purposefulness to what you're doing, people feel it and they go with it. I, another thing that I truly believe is that something that has turned off a lot of young people is they see, you know, younger people trying to, to play this music and it's almost like an anachronism, you know, it's recreating and they don't really feel it and they're not truly into it, they're not projecting the type of vibe that, you know, the great musicians of the past projected. And I think if, if we can do that, if we can really project that vibe, people will be interested. So it's partly the musician's fault as well. But that sounds like it's less. So that sounds like it's less about repertoire and more about the kind of energy of the performance. I mean, because you play a lot of stuff that mm -hmm. you know kind of dates back to the musicians you were talking about. Sure. And but it sounds like you're talking about something different than the music that you choose to play. Well, repertoire can be important, and and we do try. I mean, if you if you're familiar with a lot of our recordings, we try to include, mo you know, quote unquote modern standards and and things that you know at least the 40-somethings and the 50-somethings can relate to, not, you know, not things from the classic American popular songbook. But I, I do believe it's more, it's, it's, uh, it's more about the kind of impression you make on people and the kind of energy that you project more than necessarily the repertoire or even, you know, the image or any of those things. I think if you really do something well, if you do this kind of music well, it's very powerful and people feel it.
the students that you're teaching nowadays at, at SUNY Purchase, uh, another question that always comes up is, where are all those people going to play? Where are where are all the gigs for all you those know, students? They might not. They might not play anywhere. Some of them might, and 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 most of them. That's the the grim reality. They they won't. But it's you know it's like people majoring in history at uh, at Harvard. You know, one or two of them will be featured on PBS and make a lot of money and write books that are read by you know thousands or millions of people and the vast majority of them will just you know sink into the world of academia and teach and try to spread information about what they love that shouldn't necessarily discourage people from following their heart I always tell these young guys you know you're young now's the time to try to get involved in this don't wait till you're you know 45 years old and have a, a wife and kids and a home you know I, I see people giving up their jobs and their their whole uh, you know, the lives that they've built over the years because they want to go back and see if they can do this. And it, on one hand, it's very, uh, it's kind of noble and inspiring that they're following their heart, but it's also a little tragic that they didn't do it when they were young, you know, before they had established all these things. So I always tell the kids, just go for it. You know, if you practice your butt off and, and you have some talent, you might get somewhere. There's always room for people that can really play. Um, and if things don't work out, you can do something else. What, uh, what drew you to, to teaching? I can't say I've ever really been drawn to teaching. I enjoy it, especially when I have, you know, enthusiastic and, and re respectful young people that really want to listen to what I have to say. Because with this music, you know, the only thing I can give is uh, what I have learned over the years and my perspective on things. Ultimately, it's a very personal journey, and, you know, they're going to realize that. But if they can just pick up a few things from me and listen to what I have to say, that means a lot to me. And uh, I feel very good about it. And that's what, you know, brings me back to it year after year. But I can't say I actively sought out, you know, a teaching position. I'm more of a performer. You know, that's, that's what really excites me. But on the other hand, I, like I said, I do enjoy, you know, sharing things with younger people. And if I can help them in any way, I love it. Is one of the things that you share your practical experience of being a musician as well? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like I'm still learning. When, when I'm in a lesson, you know, with a 20-year-old, and we're talking about how to, you know, play a particular tune or a chord progression, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to relate some information to them, sometimes I stumble across some ideas that I've never thought about before. And then I end up using it again and again, and, and even for myself when I'm practicing. So, uh, yeah, it's all about practical experience. There aren't as many learning type gigs out there anymore you know when when I was young there were I, I sort of came up on the tail end of you know the organ scene and the Chitlin circuit and playing on the south side of Chicago there's not a lot of that going on anymore which is a shame um, you know so I just try to give them a few you know tidbits and kernels of wisdom and hope they can if they can just get one little idea a day that's great what, what is it that that fuels your own passion for doing this. I mean, it's as much as it is the act of performing is pretty fun. It's, there's a lot that has to go on behind the scenes to make that possible. Yeah. What keeps you coming back just to get in again? Well, the thing that really keeps me practicing is I have an idea in my mind of what I want to do and how I want to play. That does change, you know, I'll admit that from year to year. You know, you learn and you sort of hone your, your, uh, your idea of, of what would be the best way to do things. But that's okay. It's a very fluid process. You know, it's almost like a, 
all this is an, uh, an Eastern philosophical idea, but if you jump in a river, you know, you're actually part of the beginning and the end at the same time. You're just somewhere in the middle of it. And that's kind of the way it is. You know, sometimes you're thinking back and sometimes you're thinking forward. But, you know, the whole time you're just enjoying being a part of it, you know, and trying to relate to, you know, the challenges you're facing at, you know, each particular day or on each particular gig and finding ways to, to uh, confront the challenges better, you know, in a more, you know, straightforward and, uh, what's the right word? When you're younger, you know, you can overcome certain things, but it takes a long time. You don't really know how to get from point A to point B quickly. And the older you get, you, you know, you start to figure out little tricks and figure out how to do things. So it's, it, you're still in the process, but it, it's just different. And it's actually more enjoyable the older you get because you have more wisdom and, uh, you know, you, have your, you still have your technical proficiency and you can do the same things you could do when you're 20. It's not like being a gassed-out boxer that just can't do it anymore. You know, you can still do the same stuff until you're an old man. So it's very exciting and inspiring. I think I read you say somewhere uh, something about feeling like less of a perf- needing to be less of a perfectionist now, um, maybe about the kind of technical levels. Are you just more comfortable with yourself as a player now? Or? Absolutely. One of the things that I've learned, and I think a lot of musicians learn, is, is to accept you know, your, the little idiosyncrasies about your playing. Those are actually the things that attract listeners and other musicians you know, to, to your playing. You know, your pet phrases and the, ways you, the way you articulate and even things you do that maybe aren't right, you know, like certain uh, ways of playing that make you squeak or make your tone go flat or sharp or, you know, whatever. The, you know, those type of things actually become attractive to other people after a certain period of time. And, you know, as a player, at least for, for myself, I've started to understand what those things are and not really worry about fixing them, just sort of embrace it, you know, and go with it. Have there been uh, – th- this is a, an easy question, but I'll ask it anyway. Have there been some uh, some moments that have really stood out for you when you've, you feel like either in the act of playing or listening you've, you've realized something important about yourself as a musician? Or? And, you know, the honest answer to that is every time you play, you learn something. I don't really know how else to put it. There have been times when I've heard people play um, when I was, you know, really – overwhelmed by certain things they did or the the feeling of the moment and I do remember those times very distinctly I remember hearing Jackie McLean the the day that Dexter Gordon passed away and and just being overwhelmed with how much feeling he put into the music you know many times listening to people like George Coleman you know who I get the chance to hear on a regular basis thank God in uh, in New York you know just hearing the things he plays, how intelligent it is, but also, you know, what kind of pacing and refinement he has and, uh, you know, how he doesn't overplay, but how at the same time he gets to, the, you know, the most important, it's almost like the perfect things at the right moment, how he's able to do that. It's, it's very inspiring, you know. And I feel the same way about a lot of guys I've played with, you know, Cecil Payne and Pat Martino, you know, other guys like Charles Erland, uh, you know, with whom I really cut my my chops as a young player I used to always feel really overwhelmed by how much energy he would put into the music so I tried to well I tried to take from that experience just you know always give 110 percent it didn't matter how many people were in the audience you know just just try to pump it up you don't know you know just respect the bandstand and do what you can do 
So you learn something from every experience. But like I said, the uh, really probably the most memorable night for me was was hearing Jackie after Dexter passed. It, was that uh, you heard him on the very day that it either, it happened? Or, or, know, I mean, he had just. Well, I found don't know out if Dexter was in in Europe or if he passed in the states. But okay. I heard Jackie the night that wow. you know the, playing the set the night after he knew that Dexter was gone, and Dexter was really his main man. So he was very, you know, well, he was feeling a whole. Uh, a whole rainbow of emotions, but he really put it out there, you know. There's another person I wanted to ask you about uh, with whom you had a great relationship, which is Harold Mayburn. Can you mm-hmm. talk about uh, how you first got together with Harold? And, and well, he was a work? professor. He still is at William Patterson College, and, and I transferred to there in the, I guess it was fall of 1987. I just can't believe it was that long ago. And, you know, for some reason, he took a liking to me immediately. I, I swear to you, I couldn't play at all at that point. I mean, really. I didn't have anything together. I didn't know any tunes. I had just switched to the tenor saxophone. I didn't have good ears. I didn't have anything. But there was something that he liked, and he just encouraged the hell out of me from you know from day one. And uh, I really credit him, um, among other things. I mean, I give him credit for so many aspects of you know whatever I'm doing or or whoever I am at this point. But the, the biggest thing he did for me was just sort of give me the you know the confidence that I could actually do something worthwhile you know because up till that point I was just fishing around I mean I wanted to be a part of jazz music but I I really didn't believe that I could and he sort of gave me the the confidence and you know the push the impetus and and uh, the inspiration to do it that's the biggest thing about him what do you think it was that he saw I have no idea I really don't you know sometimes I see You'd have to ask him. I, I, I see younger players and I think, you know, this guy just doesn't have anything together and, you know, maybe I can teach him something, but it doesn't look good. And then all of a sudden, a year later, you know, some light bulb switches on and they can play. And then other times you see people and you think, wow, what a talent. And they just never, for whatever reason, they don't stay focused or they get into something else and they just kind of lose their way. It's very hard to predict. Um, I mean, I feel I feel like I need to be around a young musician for a period of time, you know, not a day, not a week, you know, maybe months, to get a perspective on how they're progressing and, and how they might do. So I have no idea why he liked me, really, to be honest with you. <laughs> fair I, enough. I don't know what to say. <laughs> That's perfectly fair. Uh, it's funny to hear you talk because um, 
Well, you have a, obviously a, a young-sounding voice, but if someone just read the transcript of this, in some ways it's, it sounds like I'm interviewing somebody who's like 75, because you um, you refer to yourself a lot as kind of old, and you've been doing it for a long time. And I mean, just, uh, but you're, I mean, you and I are almost exactly the same age, and you, I don't know, how, do you feel like you've really did been I, through the did trenches? Did I uh, or, uh, refer to myself as old? I didn't mean to do that, but in comparison, you know, to 20-year-olds and 19-year-olds, you know, I'm twice as old as they are. And, uh, you know, I have kids and a wife and I own a, a home and I've been through all sorts of things that they have no... I mean, I know because when I was 20, I wasn't thinking about any of that. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I was just thinking about practicing, you know, a few two five ones and hoping I could play at the, the session later that day. And what was I going to get on my pizza for dinner? You know, very single-minded and... and uh, but just not aware life you know so I, I i feel now that in comparison to that yeah I'm, I'm not an elder statesman because a lot there you know there are i just played with hank jones you know a week and a half ago that's an elder statesman yeah uh, you know but you know in comparison to young college kids or high school kids i i do have a lot of experience that i can help them with and, or help them to understand and things i can explain to them and, and I know now, after 20 years of trying to do this, that there really is no substitute for bandstand experience. You, know, you can practice all you want. You know, it's like a tennis player. If you don't have experience playing five sets in the Grand Slam, you're just not going to win the U.S. Open. You might get to the quarterfinals, you know, because somebody gets knocked out in the early rounds and you play well for a while. But at some point, a veteran's going to take you out, you know, because you just don't have the stamina, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to play the pressure points. And there's no way to learn that stuff in, until you've done it. Were you part of a generation, were you part of the end of a generation that really had the ability to get that kind of bandstand experience? I mean, is that still well, even you know, available? I don't, I don't want to take any kind of credit or, or say it, you know, absolutely one way or the other. But I'm afraid to say kind of. I mean, you know, a lot of the musicians that that came up in the years that that I came up I do feel like they're some of the last guys that had so many master musicians you know from from the bebop era and and the hardbop era around and in New York to learn from I mean it's dwindling every day it's a shame I mean these guys I mean I, I was around people that were touched by bird I mean fortunately for me I'm not taking credit for it it's just it's just the way it was I mean I was around Cecil Payne and he used to hang out with Bird, so, you know, if I couldn't hang out with Bird, at least I could hang out with somebody that did hang out with Bird. And, and now, you know, there are so few people with, you know, a, a, a link to those kinds of things. So it's, uh, it's just difficult, and the scene is different. It's so expensive to get into New York and to do all these things. But like I said before, I think people that really put their time in and, and can play, they'll be fine. They'll make it. But it, I think it's more difficult. Well, let me ask you finally, it's kind of taken as accepted that it's that, that kind of a link is important. But why, why is it important? Why, um, people always say, well, you know, I, I'm glad I learned the tradition so I can play whatever it is that I play now, which is maybe the tradition or maybe something else. Why is that? Why does that matter? Why is it important to be Well, it depends on what so you're interested back? in. If you're interested in playing, you know, modern acoustic jazz music, playing changes and, and saying something and playing in a meaningful way. I mean, the, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, for that realm, you know, there's nobody ever greater that walked the face of the earth than Charlie Parker. 
I mean, he influenced everybody that's that's playing now. I don't care if people are playing completely free or only modal music or if they're just playing bebop music or swing music, whatever. Everyone is influenced by Charlie Parker on every instrument. I mean, that should be enough to explain it. If, you, if you're able to, to be around someone that was right there to hear what he had to say and to hear the advice he had either verbally or just by the way he played, I mean, that's going to be extremely valuable. Um, but, you know, the other side, the other part of it is for my money, and, and, you know, not everyone agrees with me for sure. I mean, to be sure they don't. But for my money, what he did and what the people that, you know, immediately followed in his footsteps did, I'm talking through the 50s and 60s, that type of music, for my money, is still the greatest jazz music that's ever been played and I don't feel embarrassed or ashamed about saying that and uh, or I don't even feel like I have to defend it if somebody wants to get in an argument with me I'll put on some records and, and challenge them to put on something better than that you know and I'm talking about every aspect of it sound that the guys were getting out of the instruments you know fluidity of ideas logic and what they played composition integrity everything you know so just being able to be around those guys that were in that really golden era is it's invaluable i mean can you imagine if you're a student at juilliard in composition and you could go hang around mozart or something some sometimes history doesn't necessarily i mean things don't always get better just because they change sometimes things get worse you know sometimes there is actually a golden age of a certain type of music or a certain time of type of art you know if if people could hang out with Monet or Van Gogh or whatever, you know, that'd be extra special. They'd probably choose that over anybody painting today. And that's not to put anyone down, but I think that's just the way it is. And I feel very strongly about it. Well, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to talk to me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And My pleasure. Look forward to the show. Thanks, Thanks. a lot, Eric. All right. Thanks, Jason.
That's Eric Alexander. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. Don't forget the mailing list, which you'll find at thejazzsession.com, or the Facebook group, which you'll find in Facebook. Just type The Jazz Session into the Facebook search box. If you want to follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Jason D. Crane is your source for jazz tweets and sometimes other tweets, too. My thanks to the members of the Respect Sextet who provide the opening and closing theme for this show. You can see them live and in person at Le Poisson Rouge at the site of the old Village Gate in New York on January 12th. Opening for them will be Ethan Iverson of the band The Bad Plus. More information and information about how to get tickets online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, a very funny man who designed the uh, Jazz Sessions logo, which is not particularly funny, but uh, if you ever have a chance to talk to Dave Rabel, take it, because he is hilarious. My thanks to you for coming back. Do go out whenever you can and support live jazz, whenever and wherever you can, as a matter of fact, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.